Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 11th episode of the Atlas Society Asks. Today, we are joined by Peter Kopsis. But before I even get into introducing Peter, I wanted to remind everybody that's on the Zoom webinar that you can type in your questions and we're going to try to get to them, uh, as many of them as possible. Please make them short. It'll increase the chances of getting your questions asked. Also, if you're on Facebook, just type the comment right there into the comment stream and we will get to as many as we can. All right, today's guest, Peter Kopsis, has had a storied career in finance and investment. Though recently retired, Peter was a founding senior partner of Apollo Management, which is a leading global um, alternative asset manager with over $300 billion of assets under management. Over his 30-year career at Apollo, he's played a part in countless business turnarounds in a wide variety of sectors. Um, he has served on the board of directors of companies ranging from uh, Ralph's Grocery Company to General Nutrition Center um, to serving as chairman uh, of the board of CKE restaurants, which includes brands such as Carl's Jr. and Hardee's. Um, while we share a lot in common, including a background in uh, the food industry and an interest in objectivism, until recently, we uh, also shared a home state of California. But like John Galt before him, he decided to withdraw the sanction of the victim and move to Colorado. Also, uh, like our senior scholar, Professor Stephen Hicks, um, Peter came to the United States from Canada, where he studied finance and economics at the University of Toronto before getting his uh, MBA at Stanford University. Welcome again, Peter. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Jennifer. Great to be here. Um, okay, so you and I have had uh, many conversations over the past few months offline and also um, in our Atlas Society happy hours with our trustees, um, in which you expressed dismay at the willingness uh, of Americans to kind of unquestioningly follow the orders from the government and um, you also expressed disappointment that so many people have decided that it's the government's job to um, keep them safe rather than to uh, protect their rights. So how can we reestablish the necessity of protecting rights in the minds of ordinary Americans? Well, that's a big question, and I guess I guess I can assume that my venting offline must have been entertaining since you invited me here today. Um, so let, let's start with first principles. So, so first of all, the government's job is not to keep us safe. The government's job is to protect our rights. And you mentioned that I'm a, uh, I came uh, to the United States from Canada, and one of the things that you really need to admire about America and the unique thing about America is that our rights are our own. They're not granted by the government, and the government can't take them away. And it's certainly true that one legitimate role of government is to keep us safe, 
from foreign uh, enemies. That's national defense, definitely a, a legitimate role for government. But the idea of safety has, uh, I think, dist been distorted beyond all recognition. So some now think safety even includes being protected from ideas that may differ from our own. In fact, there's a hearing going on in Congress, probably over uh, by the time of our, uh, our uh, uh, little webinar, but a hearing going on in Congress that was largely about uh, protecting people from ideas that uh, they may find uh, harmful. And the COVID crisis has actually been an illustration of how willing we are uh, to elevate safety over our rights. It's illustrated how uh, weak our commitment is to our founding principles. I think most people, just out of self-interest, probably would have refrained from going to large gatherings, probably would have worn a mask if they thought it was actually helpful, uh, and probably didn't need the government to tell them to do it. But instead, what happened? We had lockdowns. They, we confined people to their homes. We deprived businesses of their ability to operate. And the strange thing was everyone basically fell into line. In LA, which as you mentioned, we, uh, our family recently left, we actually had a curfew for law-abiding citizens so that looters could actually have free reign in the streets. How ridiculous is that? So given the level of civil unrest, does anybody doubt that at least partially that civil unrest is due to what is, in my view, a self-destructive decision to shut down the economy, put millions of people out of work, and keep everybody cooped up at home? So let's get to your question. How do we reestablish the necessity of protecting rights? Well, I think it starts with how we educate young people, and that's a theme we'll probably come back to a couple times in this webinar, I think. Um, it's vital that they understand the genius that's the basis uh, for our Constitution. I don't believe they're taught that anymore, so how can we expect them to understand it? It would also help if the Supreme Court would do its job and protect those rights and the ones that are in the Constitution instead of uh, looking for ones that aren't there. Well, uh, that is, uh, that's definitely the case. And, you know, the, the school system has really done such a miserable job of um, educating people about their constitutional rights, even educating people about um, the, the true history of the United States. Fortunately, uh, it's done a very good job of um, educating people with, uh, I think, very destructive and divisive uh, narratives about um, about so-called structural racism in America. So um, as someone, Peter, who worked very, very hard to become an American citizen along with your wife, um, what's your take on uh, the most common complaint that's currently labeled, la uh, levied against the United States, which is um, the complaint that America is fundamentally and structurally a racist country? Well, first of all, um, I, I, don't, I, I think that I'm a, I'm a free market capitalist, and that makes me the least racist, type, uh, racist person, type of person there is. Let me explain why. So a capitalist values people for their productivity. A capitalist seeks to maximize his own net present value. A capitalist will hire, work for, trade with, partner with um, anyone that will help him, um, uh, help him achieve that objective of maximizing his own uh, net present value. And he wants to accomplish that. And he doesn't really care uh, whether the, about the person's race, the person's religion, the person's, person's sexual orientation, or any other characteristic. As you mentioned, I'm an American by choice, not by birth. Uh, I grew up in Canada, and I admired America so much that I decided I'd do everything I could to emigrate here. And I find 
with that background, I actually find America's obsession with race a bit perplexing. First, let me, let me just get on the table that I do not believe America is systematically racist. And I don't even know what that term means. Frankly, I'm not even sure the people who use that term understand what it means. Are there ignorant people in the United States? Absolutely. There probably always will be. Is America systematically racist? No. An African-American was elected president twice. The wealthiest entertainer in America is African-American. Many, if not most, cultural icons are African-American. Many, many have deservedly accumulated tremendous wealth because that is what our system allows those with skills uh, and those who work hard to do. It's amazing to me, and frankly, a little frustrating, that those who have reached these heights do not celebrate the system in which they achieve that success, and rather they pander to the mob by attacking it. So I spent 35 years in business, as you pointed out in your introduction. And I have to say, instances of racism were rare. In fact, most of the businesses that I was involved in, at least, went out of their way to advance qualified people from groups they saw as underrepresented because it made them feel good. It felt like they were doing something good and, and uh, you wanted to see people succeed. So I frankly never observed it and I actually believe it's been grossly exaggerated. Um, I agree. And I also think that the, you know, what you focus on, you tend to move towards. And uh, when you, you focus on and you exaggerate um, something as really important as racism, I mean, let's not forget, after all, Ayn Rand, you know, called racism uh, the, the most crudely primitive form of collectivism. And she, uh, at the same time, celebrated capitalism and individualism and a system of, of people that would be judged on the merit of their character and their, you know, what they had to bring, not on their past or their genes or anything like that. Um, but as you mentioned, sort of the, the uh, anti-racism uh, that we, we see being pushed, you think it should be sort of a benign um, message like the one that Ayn Rand so eloquently captured in, in talking about a rejection of the kind of um, barnyard or stockyard version of, of collectivism based on an inherited ge uh, genetic code. Um, but, but there seems to be something else at work and uh, the anti-racism uh, crowd appears to be sending a message if you talk about structures and systems uh, it's almost the message uh, to young African-Americans that no matter what they do, um, they can't succeed. How do you think uh, that this belief that you really, it doesn't matter, you know, you, you don't have any agency, could that be um, impacting the, the violence, um, the rioting and destruction occurring in cities across the country? Well, that's a very complicated question. So let's... Uh... Let's unpack it because you asked a few things. So first of all, I'm glad you asked me about the pernicious, what I refer to as a pernicious message. Um, in fact, really, I think the most pernicious message you can ever give any young person of any race is that uh, no matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, you'll never get ahead because the system is stacked against you. So not only is that incredibly demoralizing, it, it just isn't true. Um, just uh, as a sort of uh, anecdote, I, uh, I just got finished binging the Last Dance series on Michael Jordan, which, by the way, I recommend highly to anyone because uh, anyone can learn from, uh, from uh, Michael Jordan's example, and it's a highly entertaining series. But I already knew Michael Jordan was a great basketball player, no great revelation there. 
But what I had no idea about was his unbelievable mental attitude. Um, he worked at his craft probably harder than anyone in the game. So he got the most out of his innate ability. Another couple interesting things that uh, really struck me was he came from a two-parent family that made really good choices. In fact, at the recommendation of his father, he took an entrepreneurial risk on what was then an upstart Nike brand, and he profited tremendously from an, an entrepreneurial decision. And that's America. That is what makes America a great country. There are so many things in that story that are uh, that make you proud to be American, and he is he. It was it's really well worth watching. Anyway, to get back to your question, the most insidious part of the anti-racism discussion is, as you uh, mentioned, it, it really seeks to take away personal agency that you are not responsible for your own decisions. That's actually really insulting. The message is, it's not our decision or our effort that determines outcome. It's the system. It absolves people of personal responsibility. I personally find that re repugnant. So the woke left, as uh, it's now referred to, is, is actually all about, in my view, making themselves feel better. It's actually not about helping anybody. Um, and so let, let's take some examples. I mean, a serious person would understand that public schools have utterly failed minority students. A serious person would not support teachers unions who feather their own nests and care little about student outcomes. A serious person would not oppose charter schools or school choice. A serious person would actually call out the breakdown of the African-American family and either through persuasion or policy or, or some other method, encourage two-parent households and help young people make good choices before it's too late. So here's the fundamental difference, in my view, between the way the woke left looks at the world and the way I believe we should look at it. I sincerely believe that the American system has been the most successful at creating wealth and improving the standard of living in human history. And we should constantly strive to make sure all of us uh, of any race, creed, whatever, can prosper within it. But to do so, the bargain you make is you have to make good choices and you have to work hard. The woke left, on the other hand, believes the system is the problem, that it is evil. Everything has to be destroyed. History has to be flushed down uh, an Orwellian memory hole. Any idea that conflicts with their worldview is hate speech. By the way, one of the things that I find really abhorrent about the uh, focus on hate speech and social media and what have you is that you know, those who seek to shut down opposing views uh, that don't agree with their own, they call it hate speech, but they're only really con conceding that the their own ideas don't will not really win in a battle of ideas. Uh, views that don't uh, comport with your own are not hate speech. They're just different views. So anyway, to come back to your question, that's a pretty long preamble to answer your question. Um, I believe the reason for the current rioting and unrest is actually very complex. If you had any doubt that the cost of an unrealistic lockdown and shuttering of the economy was much higher than any health benefit, we're certainly now living it. You just can't put <clears throat> millions of people out of work and tell them they can't leave their homes and expect it will not result in unrest. The tragic death of George Floyd was the catalyst. Ironically, even though this was the catalyst, there is virtually no disagreement, at least none that I've heard, that the actions of those policemen were horrifically wrong. Everyone understands that they were horrifically wrong. We have a corrupt and biased media that's willfully characterizing protests as mostly peaceful, whatever that means, when they're clearly well-organized groups taking advantage of the situation and causing destruction of property. The left-leaning press 
and the radical left politicians have a singular objective, and that's to get Trump, President Trump out of office, and the ends justify any means. So our economic, it's really vitally important to recognize that our economic system is built on private property rights. And when the authorities excuse destruction of private property, as so many local officials are doing in Portland and Seattle and other places, the long-term costs to wealth creation and capital formation are going to be substantial. Agreed. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to defend um, the capitalist system, not just uh, with facts, not just with history, not just with economics, not just with white papers, not just with policy positions, but with, uh, with imagination, with um, a, a vocal um, moral defense of individualism, which is what we, uh, we strive to do creatively here at the Atlas Society. So I want to remind everybody, because we still have about 40 minutes left to our webinar, please ask your questions in Zoom keep them short, ask them um, in Facebook, and we're going to try to get to them uh, if we can. So uh, Peter, you know, as you've observed before, you know, we're just talking about race um, and, a, and a pernicious messaging to, to uh, African-Americans, uh, uh, young people about um, that the system is stacked against them and, and their own individual agency doesn't really amount to much. Uh, but, you know, as you've observed before, the anti-American, anti-capitalist message isn't only aimed at young African-Americans. Our educational system is teaching students that America is evil, and it has been since our founding. What, you know, you talk about a, a serious person, it seems kind of serious. What, what do they seriously hope to achieve by this kind of ed educational indoctrination? Well, I guess in short, what they hope to achieve is a permanent majority that can remake America into a utopia where the elusive goal, their elusive goal of equity is achieved. It's a very loaded term, equity. Um, and I think they, they uh, the left, have successfully conflated equality of opportunity with equality of result. We all want equality of opportunity. That to me is what a level playing field means, equality of opportunity, the equal opportunity to succeed and to fail. But we shouldn't expect or should we seek equality of result. And I, I find oftentimes very, very frustrating because those on the left present what I believe is a false choice. So in my view, um, America has, maybe not explicitly, but effectively has chosen to uh, strive for high median income and tolerate uh, high levels of income inequality. Okay, that's a choice. Um, another choice is to have low median income and uh, presumably gain, uh, sorry, another choice would be to strive for lower levels of income inequality, uh, but unfortunately you'd have a lower median level of income. The left presents a false choice where you can magically, in their utopia, produce high median income with low levels of inequality. This has never been achieved and never will be because it's contrary, it's contrary to human nature. We have the highest standard of living in the world precisely because we're, able, we're willing to accept somewhat higher levels of inequality, but it produces the best result for the most people. That's the important thing to remember. The left believes, on the other hand, that the entire system is evil, so it has to be destroyed and it has to be remade in order to be fixed. Some of their tactics are very cynical, but I have to say you have to admire their effectiveness. 
So, I mean, just take, uh, take, an example, take as examples some of the things that they've been pushing more recently. So one of them, one thing is to uh, lower the voting age since younger voters are more likely to buy into their utopian message. They routinely flout the immigration laws and, extend, and want to extend rights to illegal immigrants on the assumption it expands their political power. Um, this is despite the fact that low-skilled immigration unambiguously hurts uh, those that they profess to try and help. And by the way, I'm an immigrant, so I, am, I, I, I admire immigrants that want to come to this country, but I believe that this is a cynical exploitation of, uh, uh, of what, what is otherwise a good thing. Um, another one that, re that uh, I, I uh, find a little bit startling is um, the threats to pack the Supreme Court. This is a blatant attempt, just like it was in the 1930s, to intimidate the justices. I believe they've had an effect on the Chief Justice, who, who to me, looks like he's running scared. Uh, they want to add new states to ensure permanent Senate majority. They want to attack the Electoral College, or have been attacking uh, the Electoral College, uh, to attempt to create a tyranny of the majority, which is antithetical to the founders' vision in this country. They feared the tyranny of the majority. So this is a triumph uh, that's been decades in the, in the making, uh, unfortunately. And while the rest of us have been working for a living, the radical left has taken over academia, they've taken over the education system, they've taken over popular culture, and they've definitely taken over the media. So the generation that's now coming of age has a negative, very negative view of America because that's what they've been taught and that's what they hear. So if you were a student in my son's US history class, you would think nothing good uh, happened in America from the day the first European set uh, foot on North American shores. So do you wonder that they're, the statues of Christopher Columbus are being torn down? No, I don't wonder. In a US history class, they spend more time on um, <clears throat> the exploitation of Native Americans and, the re and relatively obscure figures in the civil rights struggle than they do on Abraham Lincoln or on the Lincoln-Douglas debates. One of my uh, personal pet peeves is Reagan and Coolidge, the, two, the only two presidents since the progressive era to advocate free market capitalism, uh, are, and they both did so with terrific results, are treated like comic figures. So students are fed a distorted, uh, students are fed a distorted view, and they're taught that freedom, they're taught to equate freedom to equality of result rather than the opportunity to pursue uh, their goals and to succeed or fail. So one of my, one, one thing that I, I found truly startling recently, and I'm not sure if you heard, it, heard about it, but, um, and it's an illustration of the rank hypocrisy uh, on the, on the uh, uh, social justice left, is uh, the LA Unified School District, uh, the teachers uh, recently conditioned their return to classrooms on, uh, among a bunch of other things, eliminating all charter schools, higher capital gains taxes, Medicare for all, and defunding the police. Now, what on earth do any of those things have to do with safely returning to school? So this is how cynical and how bold um, this uh, movement has become. So all of this, in you know, my humble opinion, should enrage lower income minority voters who have to know that better educational outcomes are the only true way that inequality is ever gonna be re uh, reduced. They've been taken for granted by Democrats for decades, and until they demand measures like more charter schools, more school choice, things that result in better outcomes, they really have no right to expect any improvement. Then in the, on the higher education level, the hijacking of higher education by the left um, is, uh, you know, is, is, is truly frightening. 
but it's not going to change until the donor class stops donating to university that, universities that preach an anti-American message. So the, just this will appeal to you. The productive, uh, the productive alumni need to wake up and stage uh, an Atlas Shrug style donor strike. I am all for that. Uh, and I am going to help to organize it at my alma mater, Harvard. Um, I, not too long ago, went to my 30th college reunion and before that my 25th college reunion. Uh, I don't give much to Harvard at all um, because all of my disposable income gets donated to the Atlas Society. So <laughs> all of you watching, and I know you're there, step up. Um, and yeah, and consider taking a look at this, uh, this as well. I mean, if there's one sort of strange silver lining to, to all of this destruction, you know, Peter, as you and I have discussed, there is a source of infection, you know, and there is a, a indoctrination that goes on, intimidation and indoctrination, uh, not just of, of students, but of teachers. I mean, I know so many uh, good teachers, including uh, one on our staff, a couple on our staff, who, uh, who left academia, who left the teaching profession uh, because they just couldn't take it anymore. So they kind of shrugged. And what you see left behind is just an increasingly, um, you know, non-diverse intellectual, uh, non-diverse ideological um, uh, teacher class that um, is, uh, is, is just increasingly intolerant of even the slightest fragment of, of dissent. So, um, but one of the results of this um, broken educational system uh, is just a very fundamental, fundamental statistical um, illiteracy, not just uh, of the public, but also our politicians. How can this country remain free when so uh, many people do not understand science or scientific methods and yet simultaneously demand sweeping policy changes? Well, uh, I'm no scientist, I'll start by saying that, but uh, the, uh, the COVID pandemic has certainly put on full display the statistical, statistical illiteracy of uh, both the press and certainly most politicians. So um, if we're going to talk about COVID, I, I want to start out by saying I don't mean to minimize the tragedy of the pandemic or the 150,000 deaths to date, because they are indeed tragic. But the inability to put the numbers in context is, uh, is truly staggering. So um, you know, absolute numbers of positive cases or deaths are, are, are literally meaningless unless you put it in the context of the numbers per uh, million population. So we should expect the number of cases to go up when we do more tests. We want to do more tests. That, that it's good we're doing more tests. The press, of course, loves uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, but New York State has not done a great job when its deaths per million citizens are multiples that of Florida and Texas. The deaths per million in New York is seven times uh, Florida and in nine times Texas. So. Uh, this is a case of uh, uh, triumph of PR over uh, numerical analysis. Um, the decentralized approach that the governors of Florida and Texas have followed is actually quite sensible as one size in this country that's so varied and diverse just, just doesn't fit all. And, and one of the biggest ironies of the uh, whole science debate, for, for all the talk of, uh, of Trump being a tyrant, to his credit, he actually hasn't imposed any national orders. 
which by the way, going back to our, um, uh, our discussion earlier about the lack of basic understanding of physics, uh, civics is, uh, you know, our, we have a federalist system. Uh, the states are supposed to implement these things. So we don't want national orders coming from on high. So um, whether, whether or not you agree with the way Trump's handled the virus, the fact that he's let the federalist system work, in my view, is a positive. So the United States, another numerical um, uh, you know, confounding is that uh, you know, the United States response to the virus is actually middle of the pack in the world when you measure it by uh, deaths per million. We're not great, but we're not the worst either. From the beginning, uh, you know, it's been crystal clear that the death rate uh, is dramatically different by age group, yet that's had virtually was very little impact on any policy decisions. There's been a, a complete absence of cost-benefit analysis. So I know it's callous to even talk about trading, economic, uh, trading off economic costs and human life, but the honest truth is uh, we do it every day. Um, and the cost of the COVID response has been several trillion dollars. Has it saved the millions of lives that would justify such a cost? I, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, and frankly, uh, I'm not sure anybody does, but the fact that no one's asking the question uh, is a real problem. So this is what we, and, and this, these questions are what we pay our policymakers uh, to do. And they have all done a really poor job of it and they've been egged on by a absolutely clueless press. So as to the science, it seems to me the science has been anything but clear cut. So originally masks were not necessary. Now they're the most important weapon in fighting the spread. So let me, let me say, if I have to make the trade between wearing a mask to go into a private business because the private business wants to protect its, uh, its premises and the people in it, I would pay that price just to be able to actually go out of my house. Uh, but <clears throat> first we were told the virus could be spread on surfaces, now not so much. Protests against lockdowns increase the spread, but protests against racism do not. Unchecked riots in the streets are fine, but holding a wedding or even a funeral with more than a few people is not. So is it any wonder that nobody is paying attention to the experts? None of it makes any sense. Policymakers need to take account of the science, but they also have to make trade-offs. Epidemiologists are paid to reduce risk to zero, but that's not realistic and it shouldn't be our goal. Yeah, Peter, and you know, there are trade-offs within trade-offs, you know, because when we talk about, well, saving lives from COVID versus the economy, when you destroy the economy, that has real health consequences in terms of uh, increased risk of a variety of different diseases. So I am predicting that, you know, when you look at the death toll um, from last year, same time period versus this year or, or throughout the rest of the year because, uh, I mean, so many people are not getting checked for many cancers which are uh, detectable and, and curable if caught in time. Um, there are so many more deaths from, from other preventable causes. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's every 1% increase in the, um, the unemployment rate has been demonstrated to have a statistical in, impact in terms of increased loss of life. But I don't want to get too down that uh, route, which is, is pretty, you know, as you say, depressing. Uh, I'm going to fetch some questions and answers, um, but I, I that is a prerogative of being the hostess of uh, the Atlas Society Asks. 
is to ask you one last one, which is um, one of the reasons, Peter, that uh, you and I originally got connected um, at the Atlas Society and that you eventually um, came on board uh, as one of our trustees and have been a spectacular, extremely generous supporter of our work uh, was your um, introduction to Ayn Rand and the transformative effect that it had on you and your family. I, th I think you've mentioned before you've even named um, your, your sons after two of the heroes in the book. So if you wouldn't mind if you would share with our audience your Ayn Rand origin story. Well, as long as you don't mind hearing it again, Jennifer, I'm happy to share it. Um, Never get too tired of it. Uh, so, well, first of all, um, you know, my first exposure to the, uh, the inherent beauty of uh, the capitalist system was actually, uh, my father recommended to me that I read Milton Friedman's book, Free to Choose. And uh, actually, I think he actually, he recommended that I watch, it was a PBS series uh, where they interviewed Milton Friedman and it was, uh, he was basically um, uh, talking about free to choose. And um, it had a profound effect on me. It, it kind of just resonated, I, I got it. And um, uh, as you mentioned in your intro, I studied economics in college and I was introduced to, exposed to Adam Smith and the Wealth of Nations, which uh, obviously is a seminal uh, uh, work in capitalist uh, thought. Um, all that led to, um, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough that my career started during the, uh, the go-go times of the Reagan era. And uh, when the Reagan era was coming to a close uh, and Clinton was elected in 1992 and uh, uh, you know, initially Clinton was actually quite left-wing and um, he was ushering in some rather harsh tax increases. I was uh, lamenting these incentive killing uh, tax increases with some of my, uh, my business colleagues. And one of them said, you know, you sound like, uh, you sound like um, uh, Ayn Rand and you sound like you're, uh, you, 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 you're, uh, uh, you sound like uh, Atlas Shrugged. And I said, uh, really, I've never read the book. And he recommended I read it. Um, and so I started reading it that very night and I literally could not put it down. It just spoke to me. I don't know, uh, it, just, it just resonated and spoke to me. Uh, it eloquently captures, uh, captured the way I saw the world, um, you know, to kind of put it succinctly, entrepreneurs are heroes that make our lives better and government bureaucrats are generally envious parasites that get in the way. Ironically, my wife, who grew up in a much more left-leaning environment than I did, was even more mesmerized, and uh, she started reading it uh, the day after I did, and she also couldn't put it down. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, when we we had uh, we had twin boys um, uh, shortly thereafter, and we named them after uh, the two protagonists of uh, of Atlas Shrugged. Uh, and uh, we had a third son. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't like the other na male names in, in Atlas Shrugged enough. Ragnar? To no Ragnar? That, that didn't work for us. So we named, uh, we named Francisco? him. Francisco? No. <laughs> we named him after Adam Smith. But, wow. um, uh, you know, it's, it, was, uh, it was a great discovery. Um, and, uh, you know, it's the closest thing to a kind of life philosophy that I've ever discovered. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, I've been. Uh, advocating uh, to people to read it ever since. Um, well, your sons have been spectacular. They are participating in our, um, our book club that Anna hosts, uh, which has been a lot of fun to have them on board. 
Um, and that the friend that introduced you to uh, to Atlas Drug was that uh, Andy? No, it was actually Ken Mollis, um, okay. who, uh, who uh, mentioned it to me. And uh, I know you know Ken, and he's uh, 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 he a future supporter. supporter of the Atlas Society. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, and I can also resonate with Judy's, um, Although Judy's I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you mentioned, uh, you referring to Andy Puzder, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so Andy, uh, interesting. Who was, who was uh, by the way, just having to interrupt you interrupting me. Um, he was our, when our first year, this is going to be our fourth, um, annual gala. Andy was good enough because he and I knew each other from the food industry old days to, I was like, Hey, help a sister out. We're just starting this thing. And um, after I had discovered that Andy Puzder, and may, I don't want to steal your thunder because maybe you're going to tell the story about him being a Catholic and then also a huge um, Ayn Rand fan, but uh, he was our first speaker at our gala. Well, I actually wasn't going to steal that thunder, but um, when I when I uh, when our firm um, was uh, approaching uh, Andy to uh, to invest in CKE, we discovered. Um, I had discovered I'm, uh, Atlas Shrugged before that, but we both we discovered that we both had an intense interest in uh, in Ayn Rand and, and Atlas Shrugged, and uh, we also had the same uh, birthday, not year, but same birth birthday, and uh, it seemed like cosmic. Um, and uh, I uh, I showed him my uh, signed version of uh, Atlas Shrugged, and we uh, we bonded over that. But um, so uh, yeah, that's my uh, that's my uh, background and how I became uh, exposed to uh, the ideas of Ayn Rand. Yeah, Andy Puzder, as I um, I recounted, this was the moment that I discovered this after so many years of of knowing him. That uh, once I was recruited to lead the Atlas Society, I'd uh, driven up. You know, he was before you, so he left also California. He was living in Santa Barbara, and um, he's now in Nashville. Uh, and I was kind of shocked to find out that he was such an intense Ayn Rand fan to the extent that I think he had each of his five or six uh, children that, that they had to read The Fountainhead before that they, they could even get their, uh, their, their driving license. And I was like, Andy, but wait a second, you're like a devout, you know, Roman Catholic. And is there a disconnect here? You, you know, you, you know that Ayn Rand atheist and uh, you know at least that's her her, her philosophy uh, and he's like oh whatever you know that's not was my takeaway from the books my, my takeaway was it was kind of being willing to, to stand up for what you believe is right being willing to stand against the crowd celebrating capitalism celebrating America and um, and pushing it back against uh, the looters and the moochers so anyway and I also resonate with um, with Judy's sort of you know, even more deeper uh, connect, having been brought up in myself in a more liberal um, background. So I was never, ex you know, really exposed, I mean, to an extent, my parents are actually, despite being liberal Democrats, kind of personally conservative, um, but, uh, but I had never been exposed to anything like that. So it was a big connect. Okay, Neil Lawman, um, hey, Neil, it's great to see you. Has an interesting question here and a short one. Thank you very much. Um, he says, Peter, how do you view the financial outcome, uh, I guess, to the U US and, and the world economies caused by giving uh, the, the trillion dollar giveaways, all of the spending, right, that we're doing right now 
what's what's going to be the impact? What's the reckoning? Is it like, okay, well, whatever, just pay for it. Thank you, you know, kids for picking up the tab later. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question. So I have kind of two um, two angles on that. Um, uh, one is sort of the monetary angle, and the other is just the spending itself. So let's start with the spending. So I, I'm a I'm a supply. I, I tend to look at things from the supply side, as opposed to uh, the Keynesian uh, demand side uh, in in terms of economics. And so I, I find all this uh, talk about you know we're going to stimulate demand by giving people money is just so much nonsense. Um, you know the supply side is what drives the economy, and there's very little in any of these bills that is driving the supply side of the economy, maybe the PPP where they were kind of making sure people stayed in business and had the wherewithal to pay their employees, maybe has a little bit of that. But uh, I, I think unfortunately they teach Keynesian economics in, in uh, most classes and most people still seem to buy into it even though it really doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think we could do well to focus more on the supply side than, than the demand side. So that's kind of that's kind of how we're spending the money as opposed to how much we're spending. So on the how much we're spending, um, I'm not sure if it's the first class in economics you learn, but it's one of the early ones that, you know, when you print all kinds of money, bad things happen. So let's not kid ourselves, this trillion, these trillions of dollars, which I think if you add it all up is, you know, going on five, six trillion dollars. Um, it's being monetized. I mean, the Fed is essentially monetizing it or most of it. Um, and so the money supply is growing and it creates all kinds of distortions that I'm not smart enough to totally understand. But, you know, the stock market being as elevated as it is, is that's not an accident. Um, the price of gold going to almost 2000, that's not an accident. Um, and we shouldn't think of the price of gold as going up. We should think of the dollar going, value of the dollar going down. Um, so I'm not sure where this all ends, but um, you know, we've seen since 1970, the price of gold go from, uh, was it 30 something, 35, I think it was, I'm probably getting that wrong, but it doesn't matter, uh, 35 to 2000. And that's just been the decline in the value of our currency. And we've been, it's not an accident that the growth of government has, has been exponential since we got off the gold standard, uh, because there's just nothing to stop it. So, you know, uh, I, I think, uh, um, the woke left, as I referred to them in the earlier comments, is, you know, spouts this modern monetary theory, I think is what they call it. Well, we're kind of living it. I mean, we're basically just spending whatever we feel like and we're monetizing it all. And that's really what modern monetary theory is. So we're living the experiment. I don't really expect it to end well, but um, I guess we're going to have to see. I hope it doesn't end as it ended for Venezuela, as you know, uh, Peter, that's our, our next Draw My Life. Actually, after this webinar, I'm hopping on a, a line with our artist uh, down in Venezuela and, um, and then my Venezuela Spanish teacher. So um, they, they, you know, it, it couldn't find a way to finance their you know, ever increasing um, public spending and started printing more money. And now, you know, if you run out of toilet paper, you can use boulevards. So, um, but anyway, we still have about, yeah, about 15 minutes left and uh, we can get to a couple of more questions, um, especially the short questions, including a spectacular short question from my buddy Arno. Hey Arno, I hope you and Sonia are watching and thank you for supporting the Atlas Society. 
hope to see you in a couple of months. Um, Arno asks, how do we have a free market for information? The blocking of videos are another um, path similar about which you spoke in the fight against uh, collectivism. Do they, I guess he means, um, you know, people who, who want to get uh, on the left, um, do they need 100% control of the media to survive? Or, you know, do we look, we're, we're right here, we're on Zoom, we're on Facebook, you know, we're on all of these different social media platforms. Yes, we, we do uh, hit barriers, we do get shadow banned, but we are, um, we're, we're doing it, we're growing uh, day by day. So uh, how do we have a free market for information? Or do you feel more optimistic or pessimistic about where we are in terms of threats to um, free speech from free market uh, companies that are um, controlling vast amounts of how we communicate? Well, <clears throat> you're going a little bit beyond my area of expertise, which uh, really never stops me from expressing an opinion, but I just thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd point that out before I express the opinion. Um, so I mentioned the hearing that's going on today, it's probably over now, but it was going on today where they paraded the, um, the, uh, the heads of all the large technology companies in front of Congress to talk about how powerful they are. And uh, obviously one of the subjects of discussion was, uh, was uh, hate speech and how to essentially censor. I mean, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the great things about our constitution is you really should be able to say what you want, no matter how heinous it is. In fact, the more heinous, the more it should be protected, because that's the that's the purpose of the amendment. And where we, I don't need to tell this audience, but where we um, get better and get better ideas is when the ideas clash in the marketplace and the ones that are the best ultimately win. And um, I think there's been a tendency because of this, going back to one of your earlier questions, this focus on safety and God forbid I should hear something that offends my sensibilities. We've now started to call that hate speech. Well, that's not hate speech. That's just called disagreement. Um, and uh, I think, unfortunately, there's been a trend where, um, you know, people have gotten away with labeling things that are just differences of opinion um, as hate speech. and. Uh, I, I don't. I didn't watch the hearing today, but I hope one of the um, uh, members uh, on the Republican side asked whether it's hate speech or whether it's just things you disagree with, because that's really the question. Um, now, I don't. You, you could Twitter's Twitter is a is a is a uh, you know a dumpster fire, um, and uh, they are not above that's censorship. That's for sure. Uh, they're not above uh, censorship. I. I haven't followed um, everything Mark Zuckerberg's done, but uh, to his credit, he's holding his ground a little bit. Um, I'm not sure how long he'll that'll last. Um, but uh, I think the biggest protection is the fact that uh, technology evolves. Um, you know, Congress is always, you know, 10 years behind what's really happening. So, for example, you know, I'm old enough to remember when Microsoft was going to take over the world and had to be broken up and was way too big. I'm old enough to remember when AT&T was way too big. Um, and so it's hard for us to see right now, but, you know, Facebook and Google, you know, there'll be people that upstarts that challenge them. Um, 
And we should be, we should feel fortunate that we're not back in the time when uh, I was, you know, my son's age and we had three networks, we didn't even have Fox, we had three television networks and basically they controlled everything. I mean, they controlled what you heard. Um, and now we're even as, as flawed as the current system is, it's much better than it was. And I think technology has, technology is liberating. And as much as we may think a lot of these companies are dominant, uh, they will meet their match at some point. So um, I'm actually not that pessimistic, but I do hope that somebody has the courage to call out this hate speech thing for what it is, which is just censorship. Well, maybe that will be Jim Caruso, uh, who is, uh, has also been a supporter of the Outlaw Society and um, his, um, his issue that he cares the most about is um, First Amendment uh, free speech issues. And I have learned a ton from him actually um, on how uh, political correctness and, and censorship just even within the private sector, not government censorship actually, is sort of a side door to limiting free speech. So uh, that's why our, we're gonna be doing a couple of, of new Draw My Lives, including one on, on free speech. So I'm looking forward to that. But I would also say in terms of free speech, in terms of free expression, in, in terms of uh, having the courage to, you know, speak out and speak differently and make mistakes. Uh, I think it's all good and well, you know, for us as objectivists and libertarians to criticize the social media uh, and um, uh, talk about the importance of hearing different um, ideas and the importance of tolerance. I think that the, um, the objectivist movement can also do a better job of that. We as objectivists can do a better job of that by tolerating a diversity of different views, whether it is you know, welcoming people uh, who are religionists who happen to um, find value in Ayn Rand's ideas, or even within the strict objectivist movement itself, um, tolerating uh, different schools of interpreting objectivism, and certainly tolerating and encouraging more creative risk-taking when it comes to uh, advancing the ideas of Ayn Rand. So, um, there was my little rant. Uh, okay, <laughs> Peggy says, amen to that. Peggy, did you say amen? Banned! Get her out of this group. We're not allowed to say that word. I've had enough of you, crazy. You're not an objectivist. Uh, okay. Um, okay, Donald Dubois. Dubois, I like that, that, that name. You know, I come from a long line of uh, Durands and Bienvenus in La Louisiane. Um, he wants to know, does Peter Copses have a blog or some other means to access his thoughts uh, and writings after this webinar ends? Uh, is there a URL or other means? Of course, you know, um, look, stay connected with the outside. We'll always let you know what Peter is doing. Um, and, uh, you know, also, I welcome you to step forward and-, and it's, all up, um, it's all up here, Jennifer. Okay. Well, I already know it all, Peter. I know it. I can read your thoughts and listening to them. Oh, <gasps> Peter! Oh, no, naughty, naughty. I've been, I've been known to tweet occasionally. <laughs> yes, okay, very, very occasionally. Uh, so you're, you're a, a careful tweeter. If you, follow, if you follow me on Twitter, not only will you get these brilliant observations, you will get uh, insights on NHL hockey. Uh, you'll get insights on the Beatles. Um, and many other things that have nothing to do with this. Peter, the tweeter. Um, yeah, well, 
there's there's that. Um, but yeah, hey guys, if you would like to hear another one of these webinars with Peter, then just send us some love. Tell us that you want to hear more of Peter. And I don't know, we may be able to convince him. So, um, okay, so we are kind of winding down. We've got another 10 minutes or so. Uh, Vlad Davidwick, that's an interesting name. Please forgive me if I just botched it. Um, asks, how do we assess and avoid repeating or exacerbating the unintended consequences and collateral damage inflicted as a result of uh, ill-informed overreaction to COVID? Um, so yeah, uh, how do we do that when the current political climate has shown that some, uh, there are partisans out there that are clearly never let a crisis go to waste using it to, um, to advance a political uh, point of view. I mean, as we discussed before, some of our other commenters had, had mentioned before, uh, okay, you know, in order to reopen the schools, you need to uh, raise capital gains tax and, and do things that have absolutely nothing to do with, um, you know, improving education except destroying the schools by destroying the tax base for the schools. So, you know, you know what I think is really interesting, Jennifer, is um, we've had two. Uh, crisis maybe is an overused word now, but we've had two crises in the last. Uh, we talked about this before. Years. Yeah, we had the great financial crisis of 2008, and then we had obviously COVID now. Um, and even the politicians and our leaders that, you know, nobody in, in elected office really thinks too much like we do, maybe Rand Paul, maybe there's a couple, but they're very rare. But the ones that would lean towards the right, even they become socialists in the midst of a crisis. Um, and maybe socialists is a bit strong, but even they tend towards government solutions. And um, a, lot, a lot of times in the case of the great financial crisis, the, the problem was government made. And so the, the government made problem gets solved by a government solution. Part of that's electoral politics. Um, unfortunately, both of those crises, 2008 and 2020, happened during an election year, which makes politicians even more irrational than they normally are. Um, I'm not sure, um, this is complete and utter speculation, but I think if the COVID uh, crisis had happened in 2018 or 2019, when there wasn't an imminent presidential election, I think it, the response might have been more rational. Uh, and maybe the politicians would have worked together more to come up with um, uh, rational responses. And you know, in most crises, at least before we became partisan uh, to the extreme, the country sort of got together and tried to figure things out. And they kind of, you know, maybe you know, left their partisanship at the door. That just doesn't happen anymore, even in the midst of a, a crisis like the one we're experiencing now. So electoral politics kind of get in the way. But getting back to my original point, I think even, even those that lean to the right are very disappointing in their uh, automatic reflex um, uh, gravitation towards a government solution uh, to the problem. And everyone expects the government to you know, do something. Doing nothing is just never considered an option. Uh, and oftentimes, doing nothing actually is the best option. Uh, so. How do we avoid the unintended consequences, which I think was the original question? I, mm -hmm. I think it's hard because the electoral, electoral politics create really bad incentives. And 
I guess one thing we could hope for is that a crisis doesn't happen during a presidential election year. That would be nice, but the last two have. Um, uh, but it's really, in our system, really hard to avoid because politicians want to get elected. Because we have no monetary discipline, they can spend other people's money without really any immediate penalty. Maybe the penalty would be 20, 30 years from now, but they don't care about that. Um, so it's, it's a conundrum. I'm not sure there's a great answer. Okay, well, we're just about time to wrap it up. We got an interesting question, which I can probably handle a little bit of, which is from Patriotic Moms uh, on Facebook. Um, she said, do you have a recommended list of authors, best resources for college kids, especially those interested in finance, entrepreneurship, and politics? Um, well, patri Patriotic Moms, thank Peter. Thank Peter Copses uh, for supporting the Atlas Society and uh, helping us create um, our graphic novel, the Anthem graphic novel, which has now um, been distributed to, oh God, I've lost count, 100,000 plus plus um, uh, students in schools. Um, it's gone to public libraries. Uh, and uh, and then just directly to uh, to to kids. So um, that is a great resource. If you have any means of distribution, hit us up at the Atlas Society. We will send you um, as many graphic novels as you can take. We are also coming out with our second graphic novel um, on called Red Pawn. Both of these, by the way, are also um, produced as animated videos with voiceover. Uh, so that, you know, is again, part of what we're doing here at the Atlas Society is not saying, I want you to, you must do it this way. I mean, you must, you really, you really must. But, but <laughs> you just also have to be in uh, cognizant of, okay, we crash landed into 2020, we crash landed in 2015. How are people, how are young people, that's my target audience, I mean, think about it like a business person. I want them to have this. How do they, well, do, well they don't want that. You know, they, they want videos, they want avatars, they want memes, and maybe some of them will get to this. So um, that's why also we have our pocket guide to objectivism. We just came out with our pocket guide to postmodernism, our pocket guide to terms, our pocket guide to Atlas Shrugged. I mean, we've got a lot of those. So, uh, so anyway, that's my very um, non-short answer, but that is, I'm answering it because that is specifically what I do 24 seven is uh, think about and then execute um, resources for that uh, age group. And Peter, what do, you, what do you say? In addition to that, what are the must reads? Well, in terms of, I, I think your, uh, your focus on um, things that are consumable as video and uh, through social media and the ways that young people tend to learn things these days is, right on target and one of the reasons why I really like what you're doing because I think it's much more likely to be to have an impact um, because that's the way um, the generation that my sons belong to that's the way they get information um, and that and that's the way they like to consume it so so I absolutely applaud that um, and um, uh, but if you want to go back to a traditional book uh, you know perish the thought but if you want to go back to a traditional book um, the things that I mentioned that free to choose influenced me. That's actually quite accessible if you want to learn about uh, how, how capitalism yeah, works. Agreed. Another one you don't hear about anymore, but I read um, and it, I really was struck by it was a book by a fellow named Jude Winiski called The Way the World oh. Works. 
which was an outstanding book um, and uh, well worth reading. Um, and, uh, you know, those are two that come to mind. George Gilder, I, forget, I read a book by him, uh, one of his early books that uh, um, I can't remember, the title is failing me now, but um, so those are, those are three that are not Ayn Rand, but they're more, they're more economics focused. Um, but, you know, where I, the, the Atlas Shrugged was the one that struck me because it made me, it really reinforced the idea that the creators of the world, that's where our wealth comes from. Our wealth comes from the creators of the world. Everyone else is spending or redistributing the wealth. That's where the wealth comes from. And we need to, it's vital that we understand that. And, um, and America is the most creative uh, country on the planet. Um, and that's why we're the wealthiest country on the planet. And when we, if we ever lose sight of that fact, and I'm, I fear we might be, um, it, we will pay a heavy price. Um, but that's the source. And that's really what the message to me from Atlas Shrugged was. Peter, I, I, even, I felt like I knew you pretty well, but I'm, I'm learning a lot of new things, even in this interview. And I didn't know that you were also influenced by um, the way the world works. So Jude was, if I have to count, like, you know, my three or four top mentors that I've had throughout my life, Jude Winiski, was was one of them, um, and uh, of, of course he's he's passed away. So it would be interesting for us to try to figure out uh, how to to refresh or excerpt or make more accessible some of um, some of his his um, his work. The other thing is um, patriotic moms and 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 those of you who are listening who have um, children and young people that you would like to to be a part of this. Uh, Anna has our book club, um, and uh, Peter's sons are a part of it. Um, and uh, we've had now two two books, which you should also add to your reading list. And um, we'll come up with a good good reading list uh, on on our site. But uh, one of them um, was uh, Peter Diamantis is the future is faster than you think. I think that was it. Uh, it was one of one of his books about accelerating technology which dovetails into sort of the optimistic um, point that Peter was striking before in terms of the um, accelerating innovation in social media and how uh, that is gonna be hard for you know, the regulators and even the, the hate haters, whatever, to, uh, to catch up to. Um, so that was the first book club that we did with Peter Diamandis, again, our honoree this year. And then the other one that we uh, just finished up was with, um, Chip Wilson's uh, Little Black Stretchy Pants, also titled The Story of Lululemon. Um, and that was Peter, uh, Chip was last year's honoree. So right now the kids are uh, in the book club reading um, The Case Against Socialism by Senator Rand Paul, which uh, we endlessly meme um, excerpts of that. So any of those are, are good, uh, good options, but um, we can also send you our pocket guide. So, whoa. Jay, I'm also you're reading your mind, Jay. Jay tells me, Jag, you've let this get out of hand. Time to shut it down. So it's time to shut it down. We are at an hour, but boy, we could have gone on for more. Um, but I, I really appreciate, Peter, the time, um, the wisdom, the support. It was fun. Uh, and every, every future, you know, um, person who's going to be a guest on the Atlas Society asks or ask the Atlas Society, which is sort of the flip that we do with students, 
look at the preparation here. This guy, he did not mail it in. This was, I mean, we didn't have to like scramble the, you know, mic check. He, he really did it. So, and if you would like to, uh, to, to meet Peter um, in, in person, uh, consider coming to our Atlas Society Gala. It's coming up Wednesday, October 14th. You can find it on our website, atlassociety.org. Tickets are really pretty darn reasonable. We also have a lot of students who would like to go. So, you know, if you're not in the LA area or it's just not right for you, just consider getting a ticket uh, so that uh, we can bring a lot of spectacular young people and we can just hand it over to, uh, to Peter's sons and, and, and the next generation of people there. So thanks everybody. Thanks for making this possible. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, everybody who showed up on Facebook, everybody who showed up at Zoom. Thank you for, uh, for all you do, Peter. And um, I look forward to seeing you in the happy hour. Okay, great. Thanks, Jennifer. Good to talk to you. <laughs> Thank you. Bye-bye.